Well, I think we are all well aware that as disciples of Christ, we are increasingly finding ourselves on the margins of our culture. We live on the outskirts of our society. In his work, This Secular Age, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor affirms this reality as he explains that the way people hold theological convictions and religious beliefs in our modern era is far different than how people believed in the past. He writes, religious belief is now seemingly optional. Taylor further argues that our culture has undergone a massive shift from it being almost impossible to not believe in God to now, in our day and age, it's almost impossible to believe in God. In fact, he writes, to be a candidate for tenure at any major American university is to inhabit a world in which it is virtually impossible to believe in God. And so, living in our post-Christian society, the reality we face as disciples of Jesus Christ is that most people no longer have an interest in our God or in any religion at all. The current generation hardly gives any thought to ever attending a church worship service like you are this morning. Even on holidays like Easter and Christmas, most in our generation aren't going to come unless perhaps they feel guilty because of some tradition or Aunt Mary guilted them even more into coming. Sadly, many churches are content to just live on the outskirts of our society, marginalized from our culture. But if we're honest, the reason we are content to just live on the outskirts is because it seems more comfortable for us to do so. We don't want to get involved in the mess of our society, and so we can just isolate ourselves into our little holy huddles and be content with that. And yet, the truth is, Instead of creating further distance between us and our culture, the reality of our marginal status in our society should give us an opportunity. And it does give us an opportunity to rediscover and reignite our calling as followers of Christ. Our call to be on mission with the gospel of Christ. Here in Exodus 19, the children of Israel are in a similar position. They've been rescued from the tyranny of Egypt, out of slavery for so many years, but now they find themselves on the outside, in the wilderness. Forty-eight days have passed since their deliverance, and in one sense, it should have been fresh in their minds. Yet, in another sense, the barren wilderness can tend to make you shut out the past as you hope for some form of new deliverance to something better than the present and what they are currently experiencing. But notice here in verse 4 that God does not just remind them of the past. He reminds and he helps them understand what that past was for. Notice the end of verse 4. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How I brought you to myself. For you see, so far in this family's story, God's been exceedingly gracious to this people. 
Despite their ongoing struggles to fully trust his ways and his wisdom, he's shown his deep and abiding love and extravagant mercy through his providence, his promise-keeping, and his protection time and time again of this family called Israel. He's delivered them from oppression and affliction. He's provided for them despite their incessant grumbling. And he's showcased his power over everything, over creatures, rivers, seas, false gods, opposition, and even hardened hearts. I mean, just the simple fact that Israel is where they are at here in chapter 19 in verses 1 and 2 is undeniable proof that God always keeps his promise to his people. For this is what he promised to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 in verse 12. There he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this, on this very mountain. These words are now a reality here in chapter 19. Why? Well, because God keeps his word. He has been faithful. All along, God had a purpose and a plan for their deliverance. But it was not just to give them freedom from slavery, but to set them free to enjoy him and his presence. He was bringing them to himself into a fuller experience of the covenant he had made with them and into a relationship that their salvation had been grounded in. Back in Deuteronomy 7, it explains it like this. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. In other words, the Lord delivered them simply because he loved them. Well, let me illustrate this to you like this. There is a difference between a squirrel and a child in the middle of the road, isn't there? There's a difference between a squirrel running in the middle of the road and a child running in the middle of the road. The truth is, I don't really care all that much about squirrels. Maybe you're like me. Perhaps if I'm driving down the middle of the road, I might not even swerve to miss the squirrel. But if it's a child in the road, I will swerve to miss. I will stop immediately. And if it's my child that has just run out into the road, well, I'm going to jump out and I'm going to do whatever I can to rescue my child. Well, why? Because of love. You see, if saving the child was done simply out of what is good for the child, then I should probably feel the same way about a squirrel, shouldn't I? I mean, it would be good for that poor little creature to continue to take nuts and spread them everywhere and take my pumpkins over the fall and just demolish them over and over. It'd be good if I would save it, but it's not the case. I don't have that relationship. There's a big difference, and we all know that. When a relationship binds two beings together, deliverance is not only passionately pursued simply for the good of the other, but that deliverance is motivated by love so that that relationship continues and is fully enjoyed. 
Let me say that again. When a relationship binds two beings together, deliverance is not only passionately pursued simply for the good of the other, but that deliverance is motivated by love so that that relationship continues and is enjoyed all the more. This is what God is seeking to explain here in Exodus 19. I saved you, yes, for your good, but most importantly, because of my love. I was drawing you to myself in love, and this is the foundation for what is to come in the remaining chapters of Exodus. The context into which we get chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and then on into the law is this very context of an already established covenant relationship of love. A covenant that had been made all the way back in Genesis 12 with our forefather Abraham and is now being once again reiterated here. Commentator J.A. Motier explains it in these words. The Lord's great act of deliverance and salvation has already been done, verse 4. And this is why verse 5 can speak of the Lord's covenant as an existing reality. And something to be kept that is preserved and guarded. It was in pursuance of his covenant promises that the Lord came to his distressed people in Egypt. Not to make them his sons, but because Israel was already his firstborn. The redemption he achieved for them fulfilled the great covenant promise that I will take you as my people and I will be your God. It's not, therefore, that they are ordered to obey in order that they might enter the covenant, but that already being in covenant with God, they are called to obey so that they might enjoy the benefits and privileges of God's people. Do you see how crucial this is to understanding this passage? This means that keeping the law is not about covenant status, but covenant enjoyment. Israel is not seeking to become God's people. Rather, they are learning to enjoy him, a fuller relationship with him by walking in his ways. And so it's with that context fixed that God continues here in verses 5 and 6 to rehearse the covenant relationship that exists between the children of Israel and himself. And as he does so, we see this simple overarching truth unfold in front of us. That God's redemptive love shapes our identity and it informs our mission. God's redemptive, rescuing love shapes our identity and it informs our mission. You see, having reminded them of his redemptive love before setting out to show them the best way in which to live, God is now here emphasizing who the people of Israel are and in doing so informs what they are to do. He shows them first who they are and then tells them what to do. And as we see here in our passage this morning, God speaks over his redeemed loved ones three phrases that shape their identity and inform their mission. And as we'll come to see, these three phrases shape our identity and inform our mission as well. That they are his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, and his holy nation. If you would, notice with me, first of all, that first phrase, that Israel is his treasured possession. Having established the purpose for delivering the people of Israel from Egypt was to bring them to himself. 
God now gives us a glimpse deeper into his heart for his people when he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Oh, what a beautiful title this is. My treasured possession. Wow, God is saying here that uh, out of all other tribes, tongues, and nations, Israel is his special one, his personal possession. And they are his purely by his will, his desire. In fact, if you remember, throughout their story so far, the people of Israel have done really nothing at all to deserve this kind of love or this title. They haven't wooed God in any way. They haven't made themselves unusually attractive to God either. In fact, they've done the absolute opposite. They've grumbled. They've complained. They've distrusted his promises. They've doubted his ways. They've been dissatisfied with the good gifts he's given to them and even longed to go back to slavery. Even still, God is calling these people my treasured possession, my greatest valuable. We all have something that is valuable to us. Maybe it is an heirloom that's been passed on from generation to generation. Right now, in your mind, that very thing that is your treasured possession is coming to mind. Well, when my son, Haddon, was about four or five, he all of a sudden came up with a very treasured possession that was intriguing to all of us. As a four- and five-year-old, somehow he found a small little blue BB from like an airsoft gun. And that became, oddly enough, his treasured possession. He named it Rolly because it rolls. He named it Rolly. He put it in a special little bag because he didn't want any kids that are coming over to take it. Uh, he didn't want it to get lost, and he wanted to make sure. I mean... This is to a point where Haddon, and I started questioning his mind at some of these points in this rolly business. When he would lose it by like sitting on it or it rolled away, he would start to get emotional about it. And I was like, okay, what's wrong with my kid in this moment? He's emotional over a BB. I mean, there's millions of BBs. I can go to the closet and find more for you. But for him, it became a treasured, valuable possession. Oh, of course, we all laugh at that and I wonder about his, uh, his, his brain in that. But we all have some sort of valuable possession, don't we? Here, God is saying that even though there are thousands of other people, there are thousands of nations, I have chosen you. I have a deep and abiding love. You are my treasured possession. As a matter of fact, this is wedding language here. It's what every single bride wants to hear on her wedding day and every day after. You are my treasured possession. In Obadiah 17, we find a similar phrase. It says, to possess one's possession, and it's used there to express the idea of entering into the full enjoyment of what is ours. And this is exactly what God is saying. He has acted, he has delivered he has secured his people, and their obedience to him brings him full enjoyment, for they are his. He delights in them. He delights to dwell in a relationship with them. God delights to dwell with his people. As they walk in his ways, as they obey his commands, they are his treasured possession. 
when we know God delights in us. We delight to do his will, and so this is a relationship of delight, enjoyment. This is who Israel is in God's eyes. This is their identity, but that's not all. It's not all that's said here in this passage, for we notice next that Israel is also to him a kingdom of priests. Having rooted their identity in his love for them, God now only further explains their status with him. But he also begins to explain their mission. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, even though the priestly role and function has not yet been established for this nation of Israel, the truth is they would have been genuinely aware of priests and their role. In fact, Jethro, who shows up back in chapter 18, was the priest of Midian. And it's likely that there were priests in the false worship of the gods in Egypt as well. And so simply by living in the ancient world, these people, Israel, would have known the priest and how they were and what they were to do, what their functions were, even at their most basic level of understanding, when God spoke these words, they would have had this idea that a priest represented the people before their God and their God before the people. You see, the presence and activity of priests created the possibility of a relationship with the people and their deity they worshiped. A priest was the go-between, the mediator or the intercessor between two parties. So now here, God identifies Israel as a kingdom of priests. What he is saying is that Israel, in the same way, will create the possibility of a relationship with Yahweh, the great I Am, for the nations. They will become the go-between They will show and declare who their God is. Author Tim Chester notes, As a priestly kingdom, Israel was to represent God to the world through mission and represent the world to God through prayer. The world could not see God, but the world could see Israel and should have seen his glory in them. In other words, as a kingdom of priests, Israel would make God and the ways of his kingdom known to the nations. Do you you see how significant this is? How their identity shapes who they are, shapes what they are to do? God's mission to make himself known now has become their mission to make him known. God had made himself known through his mighty acts of judgment, salvation, and now he'll continue to do so through his people. As they live in the ways of his kingdom. What amazing reality this is that they are his kingdom of priests. And once again, the phrase here echoes the covenant promises and commission to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God here in Exodus 19 is reminding his people that they are to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And they will do so as a kingdom of priests who represent the king of all kings to the nations by living in his good and righteous ways, which leads us to the third declaration God makes over his people, that they not only are his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, but are a holy nation. That they are a kingdom of priests logically and even spiritually connects this to this final statement of identity 
and mission as the people of God. For priests are those who are to be holy. But the word here literally means set apart ones or those consecrated for a specific service or purpose. Specifically here for Israel, they are set apart to represent God before the nations. And once again, the tiny phrase at the end of verse 5 is crucial to fully understanding what God is declaring over his people here. Notice what he is saying, out of all the peoples, for all the earth is his. You see, out of all the people, God has set apart the people of Israel. He has dedicated them for this purpose, for this role, for this mission. This is why they were chosen. This is why they were rescued for this very reason. Now, it's usually at this point when we hear this idea of holiness that, we, that some begin to bristle. I mean, there, there goes the preacher again, talking about holiness and commands. I mean, always a killjoy. But friend, if that's your thought this morning, let me ask you this. Do you appreciate that hospitals go through a very tedious process of holiness and consecration? Well, what do I mean? Well, let's take, for instance, that the instruments that a surgeon uses. Uh, we all want those instruments to be sterilized and used only for that surgery, right? Uh, we could say we want them to be holy, set apart, consecrated. They're for a distinct purpose, a knee surgery, not a knee surgery and opening boxes in the storage room or a knee surgery and cutting pizza in the dining room. No, this is the point that God is making here. They are a holy, they are a set-apart nation. They have a specific purpose to make God known. And sadly, often this idea of holiness has been mistakenly applied within the church as a call to disconnect from the world, to separate ourselves from the influences that might taint us. But that's not at all the point here. For you see, when God calls Israel a holy nation, he is not calling them to disengage. Rather, he is declaring them to already be holy. And as such, they are to be distinct in the ways they live. So distinct that the dazzling difference in God's kingdom shines into the dismal darkness of the kingdom of this world. They are set apart for that very purpose, to show and shine who they worship, God in his kingdom, into a dark world. Tim Chester again writes, this is God's peculiar people, and so they will be separate, set apart. Israel is not separate in the sense of living in isolation from the other nations. No, as holy and priestly. Israel is the means by which God will, as his plan unfolds more and more, bring the nations to have a knowledge of him. This is who they are, and it informs what they are to do. As treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, they are showcasing what their God is like. They are his treasured possessions, so they dwell with him in delight, his kingdom of priests. And so they hold out the possibility of a relationship with God 
to all nations. They are his holy nation, and so they live distinct lives to showcase his glory. They are how the nations will know the Lord, but. But this nation, Israel, as the family story continues throughout the Old Testament, we begin to see that they fail to live out their identity and live their mission. They fail to obey God's voice and keep his covenant. It's not even a couple chapters later and we start to see this taking place. The law that was for their good, for their enjoyment of God's covenant with them, they turn from it to other gods. They fail to live under and in the good of the declarations God has made over them as his chosen loved ones. You see, as the story continues, Israel fails miserably. And yet, God does not break his promise. For through the offspring of this nation would come one who would not fail. One whom God would declare over at his baptism, this is my beloved son, my treasured possession, with whom I am well pleased. The one who would declare in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the one who was, as the author of Hebrews writes, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and entered once for all into the holy places by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. You see, the one who did not fail was the offspring of Israel, Jesus. He is the true and the greater Israel, who succeeded where the people of Israel failed. You see, friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promises to Israel, and in him are all the nations blessed. And so you see, friends, it's not only because God kept his covenant promises in Jesus that there is hope for the gospel to go forward, but it also means that this story here in Exodus 19 is our story as well. This is our God who rescued us and who, as the Apostle Peter writes, who has said, you are a chosen and precious one. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see this good news of Jesus as being the one who fulfilled the covenant promises and by his fulfillment yet still took upon himself our sin and our shame and was crucified for our sake. That good news now sends us out. For our identity now in Christ informs our mission. And so as we heard earlier, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's our mission, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter will say, you once received no mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, that is our identity as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that informs our mission, that we would go. Because of Jesus, we are God's treasured possession, so we might dwell with him in delight. Friend, how do you view God's posture towards you? Do you think of him as disappointed, disinterested, or is he delighting in you? See, the truth is, if you are in Christ this morning, you are his treasure. You are his treasured possession, so live in that goodness. We are God's kingdom of priests, and so we hold out the possibility of a relationship with him to all nations. So how do you view God's mission for you? Is it merely optional? Or is it just for others to be involved with? No, you. You are his treasured possession. You are his kingdom of priests. So are you gratefully going with this gospel? This is what we get to do. And when we stand in the goodness of our identity as his treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and his holy nation, we get to do this. We get to go with the gospel. It's not that we have to. We get to because we get to share about the Father who we delight in, who delights in us. We are God's holy nation. And so we live distinct lives showcasing his glory. For the reality is we live in a world of sin, rebellion, suffering, and pain. Statistics say that there are over 3 billion people who live on less than $2 a day. Billion of those people live in desperate poverty. Hundreds of millions starve and die of preventable diseases. Yet their spiritual condition is far worse. Billions of people across the world engrossed in false religions. Approximately two billion of them have never had a chance to hear this good news and are still on the road that leads to eternal hell. Yet as believers, we know that Jesus is Lord and that he has died on the cross for our sins. He's risen from the grave. We sing this good news every single week as we gather together. We rejoice in it. We know we have been saved to know God and to enjoy him. And very soon we're going to enjoy him forever. But we must not forget that while we are here, God has given us his spirit for one purpose. You see, we are his kingdom of priests. We are his treasured possession. We are his holy nation as the church for one purpose, one mission. We have been changed, and we have then been charged with reaching the world with the gospel. Church, we are how the nations will know the Lord. And so, Father, Move us as your people to go and declare, to proclaim the excellencies of you who have drawn us out of darkness, shown us your special love. 
made us your treasured possession. May we be those who hold out to our neighbors, to that coworker that is coming to our mind right now, that they too, that he, that she can know this amazing God as well.